Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Todd Wicks. Monroe County has received more than $2 million from the Indiana Department of Natural Resources to expand the Karst Farm Trail to Ellettsville. In a presentation to Monroe County Commissioners on July 10th, County Attorney Margie Rice said the multi-purpose trail will run through the Monon Railroad corridor. It's uh, going to be a 2.8 mile trail, about 10 feet wide. It'll be asphalt and there will be some boardwalks because there are some higher areas where we have to elevate kind of a bridge and uh, it'll be a bike and pedestrian trail. There will be um, bridges, as I said, some bridges and it will in fact go over an operating railroad. So that's going to be a challenge with this. But it'll essentially, there is a trailhead existing in Ellettsville um, on 46, and it's going to connect that trailhead to the Cars Farm Greenway. The DNR funding comes in the form of a next-level trail grant. Monroe County is required to provide a local match of more than $900,000 to the $2.3 million project. In other business, the Indiana Department of Transportation is returning county property it acquired for I-69 construction to Monroe County for environmental mitigation. Rice told commissioners the agreement with INDOT calls for Monroe County to environmentally restore 40 acres near Dillman Road and Victor Pike. You'll recall that the county, we developed a trail south of Church Lane to this property. The trail actually, um, I think just this week, the Parks Department and DNR went out and looked at the trail. It's nearly done. I'm going out tomorrow to look at a few areas where we need some extra fencing. But this will attach to the county, or it does attach to the city's uh, Clear Creek Trail system. With the exception of the county's trail, Rice said portions of the property will be restricted from public access until the year 2026. So we essentially have to take care of that property, make sure the trees grow and that it continues to be mitigated as green space Mm -hmm. because when they came through and did I-69, obviously they took a lot of green space, so we're adding some back. Um, The trees, we have to make sure that they're protected. We also have to do education and outreach regarding the endangered Indiana bat and the northern long-eared bat species, which Parks, I'm sure, is able to do. Um, Tree clearing is strictly prohibited. we can uh, do some tree removal, if, you know, there are trees that are in bad shape, between, um, but it has to be performed between November 16th and March 31st, again, right. because of the bats. And then artificial lighting is strictly prohibited. Rice told the commissioners NDOT may return several more county properties for mitigation in the future. The City of Bloomington Utilities has begun installing smart water meters in Bloomington. 
In a press release, CBU said the project will begin with installations at existing water tanks. The smart meter technology will allow customers' water meter readings to be wirelessly transmitted directly to CBU. CBU says these upgrades will improve leak detection and customer service. Starting next year, CBU customers will be able to monitor their water usage online. The upgrades are expected to take about a year to complete. Each CBU customer will have their water service interrupted for about 30 minutes during the installation. CBU says that there will be no new rate increases or surcharges as a result of these upgrades. A June heat wave cooked tens of thousands of mussels to death along the Northern California coast. Jackie Sones, research coordinator for Bodega Marine Reserve north of San Francisco, said, quote, We think this is the most significant mussel mortality we've seen on Bodega Head during the last 15 years, unquote. During the heat wave, the San Francisco temperature hit 97 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot enough for the insides of the mussels attached to the rocks and exposed to the hot air to get to 105 degrees. Sohn said mussels are a foundation species. They provide shelter and habitat for lots of animals. Danger to this core habitat affects the rest of the ecosystem. The American Psychological Association has identified a new mental health problem labeled eco-anxiety. Concern about climate disruption is causing an increasing number of people to feel stressed, fearful, and powerless. The association describes eco-anxiety as a, quote, chronic fear of environmental doom, unquote, coming from the knowledge of worsening natural disasters, melting of polar ice, and the fact that human beings have only 11 years to prevent the most dire effects of the climate crisis. Last December, a Yale University survey found that almost 70% of Americans are somewhat worried about climate disruption. 49% feel afraid and 51% feel helpless. A recent Harvard University poll found that 45% of young Americans think climate change is a, quote, crisis and demands urgent action, unquote. Another 2018 poll reported that 75% of millennials said confronting negative information about the climate has had an adverse impact on their mental well-being. Japan has resumed commercial whaling after a 30-year moratorium. Commercial whaling was banned worldwide in 1986 by the International Whaling Commission, or IWC, due to dwindling whale populations. Almost all nations signed on to the treaty. Norway and Iceland did not. Japan signed on but continued whaling in the South Ocean because of its remote location. Japan used a clause in the treaty to continue whaling for research, which environmental groups have decried as little more than commercial whaling in disguise. Last year, Japan withdrew from the IWC. Last month, five whaling vessels departed Japanese ports to hunt in Japan's territorial waters until December. They plan to harvest over 200 whales. The whale species in Japan's waters include the 25-long minki and the 45-foot-long brudas, as well as the sai whale, which is slightly larger than the brudas whale. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Todd Wicks. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976. 
offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Booming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Macrofungi can absorb heavy metals from the soil and sequester the toxins in their fruiting bodies, the visible above-ground mushroom. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower, and I'll describe more about the common mushroom's natural capability to decontaminate soil that's laced with heavy metals in this segment of The Secret Life of Fungi. Contamination of soil, water, and air by toxic chemicals represents one of the major environmental problems worldwide. One of the worst contaminants is mercury. This heavy metal has been released by coal power plants for centuries now. So, along with an overload of carbon dioxide to our atmosphere, humankind continues to spew heavy metal gases and particulates into the air. Mercury is of significant concern as it persists in the soil and water. Wherever the wind has taken this known neurotoxin and metabolic disruptor, mercury biomagnifies up the food chain. A number of techniques have been tried to detox soil contaminated with mercury. Soil washing, stabilization, thermal treatment, even nanotechnology. Each approach has challenges with containment and, of course, expense. There's also the lingering question, does the decontamination process introduce other toxins into our environment or just move it around? Welcome to the emerging technology of bioremediation, an effective method that uses living organisms, bacteria, plants, and fungi to detox polluted soils and waters. The goal of a bioremediation process is to degrade, accumulate, or immobilize, and even transform a toxic element at the molecular level to significantly reduce the level of environmental contamination. The thing about mushrooms that makes them so exquisitely capable of sequestering heavy metals is fungi are nature's decomposers. It's the fungi kingdom's job to spread through the soil, connect with neighboring plants via interwoven root systems, and seek minerals and nutrients. The root-like mycelium naturally produces extracellular enzymes and can also apply an indiscriminate acid attack to transform and transport anything it encounters underground. As a mycosymbiote, the fungi shares nutrients, like nitrogen, with vascular plants in exchange for carbohydrates. And when the fungi encounters heavy metals like mercury, they take up the metals into their fruiting bodies, the mushrooms. Some common mushrooms are particularly adept at sequestering mercury, turkey tail, shaggy mane, and several varieties of oyster mushrooms. So beware, if you see otherwise medicinal or edible mushrooms sprouting near a utility plant, don't harvest them for food. Better to contain, examine closely for heavy metal content, and possibly put them to work on a local mycoremediation project. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower for The Secret Life of Fungi, here on EcoReport. According to the Indiana Department of Agriculture, Hoosier farmers are growing more cover crops. A report released last month shows cover crop usage has increased more than 400% in the past seven years. 
There are several benefits to planting cover crops, as Purdue agronomy professor Eileen Kladivsko tells WFHB's Norm Holy in today's feature report. We've covered cover crops a little bit just in stories before, and so I understand that there's the growing use of cover crops in Indiana. Can you tell us about that and then move on to what are the advantages of doing the cover crop? Certainly, I'd be happy to. Cover crops have definitely increased in their uh, usage in Indiana. Indiana is actually one of the leaders in the country in adoption of cover crops on farms. As you all know, Indiana grows a lot of corn and soybeans and have an opportunity after the corn and soybeans have been harvested to get cover crops established and make better use of some of the time that we have available during the year rather than just four or five months when we're growing summer annual crops. We have about 10% of our corn and soybean acres in Indiana right now that are using cover crops, which actually makes it the third most prevalent type of crop in Indiana after corn and soybeans. Uh, We have more cover crop ground than we have cash crop wheat ground. That's a good thing. Cover crops have many potential benefits for the soil and for the environment and water qualities. Why would somebody want to use cover crops? Well, they can improve soil health. There's a lot more interest in the recent times in the biology of the soils, things like earthworms, but also much smaller organisms like protozoa and fungi and bacteria. And by having something growing for a longer period of time during the year, you're feeding the soil organisms. If you have cover crops growing, you're protecting the surface from erosion. The roots exude carbon compounds, which feed the organisms. Those organisms then help stabilize the soil. They build clusters of soil and help increase organic matter, those particles uh, get glued together in a way that stabilizes them against destructive forces from erosion. Um, That helps improve water infiltration into the soil, which then means you get less runoff off the surface of the soil, and so that's also going to help protect against erosion. We also look at cover crops to scavenge excess nutrients, and by excess nutrients, I don't mean that somebody has put on too much fertilizer. I mean that the particular plant growing there has not utilized everything that might be available. It might be fertilizer that's left from this year that the cash crop didn't take up. It might be nutrients that are being released naturally over time from soil organic matter. That happens all the time. So having something living and growing to take up those nutrients and scavenge those nutrients keeps some of them out of our water bodies. And in particular, in a lot of Indiana, at least on our flatter, naturally poorly drained soils, we have a lot of uh, drainage tile. That's basically draining away the high water table that we have in the spring. And if we have nutrients in that water, then it goes out the drain tiles into surface ditches and streams. By having a cover crop, we reduce the amount of those nutrients that's in that water and that drains away. Basically, those nutrients stay in the soil bank account then, available at some later time for the the farmers to, to utilize. may not be that particular year, but it'll be helping to build up soil organic matter. I, I'm curious about comparing a field that has not had cover crops versus one that has had cover crops for, let's say, several years. What's the difference in organic matter in the soil? So soil organic matter is very slow to increase, and so that's one of our challenges is that 
you won't generally see a measurable increase in soil organic matter with a couple of years. Soil organic matter changes over the course more like a decade, and it's quite variable in a field. That's why people are trying to look at other indicators that can give us a sense that that organic matter is actually increasing, even though the measurement that we make itself is not increasing. That's very frustrating for people, but that's just the way it is. Soil organic matter can increase about 1%, meaning going from 3% organic matter to 4% organic matter, for example, over the course of a decade. That would be a very good increase in soil organic matter. But because of the variability of the measurements, you can't actually measure or detect that within two or three years, usually. How does a cover crop work in terms of years when we have a drought in Indiana? Does that protect the soil, retain water better, or is there no difference? Yes, as as always, that depends. But if um, if you have a good cover crop and you have a lot of top growth in the spring... For example, if you have a cereal rye cover crop and there's a lot of above-ground biomass, that ends up becoming a mulch. So just like in a garden, if, if you, uh, first of all, when the rains do come, you get more of that rain that goes into the soil as opposed to runs off. And then secondly, it's reducing the amount of evaporation that occurs with the mulch. So it can be helpful in a drought to retain a little bit more water. The catch is just when does the drought occur and how much cover crop growth did you have and did the cover crop actually use more of the water through the plant itself before you killed the cover crop and made the soil drier before planting occurred, right? So an early drought, you have to be careful that the cover crop doesn't use too much water before you get your cash crop planted. A later drought, the cover crop can be very helpful because it's a mulch on the on the surface and you get more of the water into the soil in the first place. We try to educate folks about the fact that the benefits of cover crops in general don't occur the first year or two unless you have really sloping soil or unless you have uh, fairly degraded soil. If you have decent soil to begin with, you may not see a lot of benefits the first couple of years, but with time you'll see those. What do people plant as cover crops? We have cereals or grasses, we have legumes which fix nitrogen, and then we have brassicas like daikon, radish, and a turnip and things like that. The most common would be in the, the group of grasses. So for example, cereal rye or annual rye grass or winter wheat, but not planting it to harvest the, the wheat, just using it as a cover. Those are the most common in part because they can be planted later than anything else in the fall and still give you sufficient growth. They grow earlier in the spring for the ones that, that overwinter. The legumes get going slower. You have to get them planted earlier in the fall, and they don't really grow a whole lot in the spring until May until it warms up, and most of the time our farmers are wanting to plant their corn already by late April or early May, so they don't get as much benefit out of the the legumes um, given our typical system. And then the brassicas, I'm talking about like a daikon radish, which has a, a looks like a big carrot, has a long taproot, or a, a turnip. Those those are interesting because they have a long taproot so they can help 
make pores or channels that are deep in the soil that allow for uh, even more rapid water movement into the soil. But I would say they're, they're not as common. The, the seed is more expensive. Again, you have to get them planted earlier in the fall than, than you would for something like a, a cereal rye. Fantastic. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for the interview. Okay, thank you very much. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. Hummingbirds are among the smallest of birds, three to five inches long and in weighing as little as a penny. They have the highest metabolism of all animals except for insects. They are capable of hovering, which is easily seen at a feeder or when they slip their long, needle-like bills into the throats of flowers. The sugars they eat powers up to 100% of their metabolic needs. Hummingbirds go into torpor during the night when they cannot refuel. This behavior prevents energy reserves from falling to critical levels. In torpor, body temperatures fall and breathing and heart rates are slowed. The hummingbird suffers a 10% weight loss each night. It is hard to imagine how these tiny birds could possibly migrate the distances they do. Our own ruby-throated hummingbird migrates over 500 miles of open water in the Gulf of Mexico. In order to do this, they must boost their body weight by 100%. Fall is the time to keep your hummingbird feeders filled. No red coloring, only four parts of boiled water to one part sugar. Bon voyage, little traveler. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Drop by the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake for a composting program on Friday, July 12th. It will run from 10 to 11 a.m. Explore the reasons for composting and discover how you can compost effectively at home. Meet at the campground playground. There will be a snake fest at Brown County State Park on Saturday, July 13th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Exhibits at the park's nature center will give you a chance to get up close and personal with all kinds of snakes and other reptiles. Learn about native snakes, where to find them, and why it's important to protect them. You can take a full moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, July 14th from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Meet at the Sycamore Shelter for a rugged hike on Trail 4 to enter the full buck moon and learn some history about why it's called the full buck moon. 
This is a two-mile hike that includes stairs. McCormick's Creek State Park is hosting a canyon cleanup day on Tuesday, July 16th, starting at 10.30 a.m. Meet at the Canyon Inn to start the day. Brown County State Park is hosting a plant program on Wednesday, July 17th from 10 to 11 a.m. You'll have the opportunity to learn about the plants in your yard and on the trail side. The program will meet at the Rally Camp parking lot and include a naturalist-led hike on Trail 5 through Ogle Hollow Nature Preserve. The hike is rugged and around three-quarters of a mile in length. Sturdy shoes are recommended. And that wraps up our show for this week. EcoReprod is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, and Kaylin Huffman Brower. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy. Kaylin Huffman Brower produced The Secret Life of Fungi. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Andrew Brown, Sarah Vaughn, and Kaylin Huffman Brower edited the script. Tune in on Thursdays at 11:30 a.m and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, as well as nature, get out and hike, and Secret Life of Fungi episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.